Welcome to the Officer Media Group Roll Call Podcast. Officer Roll Call is meant to inform and entertain. Now, let's get into this episode. Welcome to the Officer Roll Call Podcast. I'm Paul Peluso, the editor of Officer Magazine, and I'm joined today by Officer Media Group Editorial Director Frank Borelli. How's it going, Frank? Good morning, Paul. Doing good this morning. That's great. Well, today we're going to talk about implementing new technology the right way, which is the title of an article that appeared in the August issue of Officer Magazine. Uh, the National Law Enforcement Officers Museum recently held a roundtable on how to successfully advance law enforcement technology, and it was sponsored by facial recognition company Clearview AI. Um, during the session, both industry representatives and law enforcement leaders spoke about the importance of properly rolling out these types of programs. Uh, during that session, the participants spoke about how agencies must carefully implement these programs from the start, since there will oftentimes be a pushback from public and local officials. So would you want to talk a little bit, Frank, about um, you know, your experience with these types of programs. I know a lot of this is pretty new um, within the last five to 10 years, a, a lot of these technologies, but there, there's been a lot of technology that's been implemented over the years. You know, it, it's kind of interesting, Paul, and I think it's funny you talk about how it's kind of new, and I really haven't worked patrol in almost 20 years. Um, but, you know, even then, we were looking at, and, and you had your uh, rugged laptop computers that were using thumbprint scanners as a, me a means of security um, so that if you wanted to open them or log into them, you had to scan your thumbprint. We've, we've had technology that grows and it's not just biometrics or things like facial recognition. Um, you, you start out with something as easy as a barcode scanner to get information off a driver's license and, and the technology gets integrated into how you do business day to day. Um, it, it, it's definitely growing and it's growing almost faster than we can keep up when you look at it. You know, portable radios in cars have only been around since about the, the 60s. And in 60 years, we've gone from that to um, automated license plate recognition systems. And as soon as we can get facial recognition as efficient as ALPRs, then we're going to have what we saw. What was that movie? Um, Minority Report, where... Yeah. You know, you walk through a subway station and there might be a camera that recognizes your face and whether or not you're wanted, uh, you know, what the warrants for alerts police to your presence. I mean, this is something that can really go a long way when we refine it sufficiently for a high enough accuracy uh, performance level. Does that make sense? Of course. Yeah. And like you said, a lot of this stuff with the new technology, it's like you get a camera on everything. Um, but then what can the cameras do? What extra things they can do? And a, a big part of that session, they spoke about facial recognition uh, technology and Armando um, Aguilar, who's the assistant chief of, pol uh, of police for Miami's criminal investigations division. He talked about how they started using facial recognition technology and how um, they, they grappled really with having so much evidence from those cam cameras that there was no way to identify the subjects in them. And of course, in the past, uh, you would you know, release a clip of a video to the uh, local news stations, and hopefully you would get a lead off of that. Um, but this way now, they're able to really narrow down, you know, who is in that video um, without necessarily needing to just hope and pray that they get some kind of lead uh, out there. But a lot of those hurdles that they uh, encountered and had to do with, you know, um, 
uh, dealing with the public and, and the program was actually implemented before he took his position and they had all of this data, um, but they didn't really implement it in what he thought was the right way. Uh, so they were able to go back, hold town hall meetings, get feedback, uh, do sit downs. And even they spoke with the local chapel chapter of the ACLU, which uh, of course they weren't like thrilled with it. Uh, but, but they, they found ways to kind of um, try to implement it, I guess the right way. Um, and, and they worked with Clearview AI and, uh, on, on that session, uh, Skylar Kern, who's the VP director of government affairs, but he was also, um, with the Texas department of public safety before that he said agencies must have a plan and they must have need like a common understanding of what they're trying to solve, what they're trying to use this technology for. So first, uh, Frank, if you can talk about how do you think technology like, like facial recognition, especially is uh, changing the way investigations are being done? Well, I mean, there's different ways facial recognition can be used uh, from recreation of facial structure, trying to identify corpses to trying to find uh, suspects or identify them. You know, you mentioned um, them putting out the, the uh, you, you get all this video and, yeah. and I want to comment real quick. One of the biggest things law enforcement underestimates is the amount of data that has to be managed in relation to all this technology. Yeah. Uh, when, when we first got a dash cam and the, the resolution wasn't all that high and, and you might have a clip that was 20 megabytes, now you have a single incident and, and it's you know 500 gigabytes of data because you have three different body cams and two dash cams and uh, a prisoner transport cam and this many cell phone cameras and everything else. And the resolution is so high. And with facial recognition, to make it accurate, the resolution has to be sufficient. But isn't it interesting now that we're not just taking a screenshot or a video clip and putting it out through the news and saying anybody who has information come forward? Uh, our local sheriff's office, I see this all the time, they'll take uh, a clip from a video feed someplace and put it out on social media and you know try to get identification for a suspect but really going into it an agency needs to fully understand and fully identify their needs and requirements and then they need to project the cost and then they have to find the balance so here's my list of needs and requirements and my annual cost is going to be five million dollars um, and for a big agency that's probably a small number uh, but my budget line is $1.5 million. So which of my needs and requirements can I meet? Well, how do I prioritize, though, for the $1.5 million? And something people can never project is the ongoing and almost forever cost of data storage that's growing geometrically every year. Sorry, kind of went off on a side tangent there. Yeah, but that was great, Frank. It, and it's, uh, you know, it, it is amazing the way this can be used, but there's always going to be a cost attached, and we have to we have to we have to understand that and manage it correctly as well. So no, that was great, Frank. And moving on to DNA technology, um, Sergeant John uh, Cadner from the Cascade County Sheriff's Office um, in Montana. He talked about in 2012, he was assigned a double murder case all the way back in 1956. And in 2001, investigators had uh, sent a glass slide from the victim uh, to be processed uh, in a DNA profile of the uh, possible suspect was uh, developed. 
And that profile was uh, filed away in the combined DNA index system or CODIS. And the agency never received any hits from it. Um, but when the Golden State Killer, if you, you know, if you remember, that was a big case from just a few years ago now. Yep. When he was uh, identified using uh, genetic gene genealogy uh, testing in 2018, the new um, technology became more widely used. And they were able to... Um, they were able to find a was it familiar uh, a family hit I guess uh, um, using that technology uh, they made a new identified a new profile uh, that could be used for through uh, STR testing and once um, the individual was identified they uh, they had found out that he had passed in 2007 um, and then they were able to uh, approach um, family members who were still alive and test that against their DNA profiles. And basically he talked about how, you know, that, that scenario can be very, you know, it's, it's a tough thing to do and you really have to, you know, approach it the right way. Um, especially when you're approaching a family uh, to compare a DNA sample against uh, after all those years and, and just, being able, I, I think a lot of what they talked about is being able to weigh, you know, the investigation, but also uh, taking care in the way that you implement it and the way that you go through with the investigation itself. Well, you, and, can you yeah. imagine, Paul, going to a family member and saying, hey, we'd like a DNA sample because we need to find out whether or not your relative that died in 2007 committed a crime in 1956? Yeah. I mean... I always thought <laughs> yeah, exactly. that death notifications were the worst thing you could do, but I wouldn't even know how to start that conversation. Yeah. And he, he talked about how, you know, driving up the, to the house, they really talked about how they were going to handle this, how they were going to approach it. And, um, and yeah, a lot, a lot of things have to be taken into account. And, um, but going back to the DNA technology, how, how do you think that's changed investigations? Um, it, it just, becomes more involved, you know, year by year now that uh, more things are being done with it. Well, I, I think the public has a view of it that might be a little bit unrealistic based on everything Hollywood puts yeah, out. But yeah, of course. when you think about it, um, fingerprints used to be the end all be all. Did you have your friend, you know, if the finger, if my fingerprints were on a murder weapon and the murder weapon could be positively linked to the, the crime, then I was positively linked to the crime. Now we have DNA. And DNA, uh, we're, we're able to get samples or uh, identification from smaller and smaller samples and out of clothing and everything else. So uh, we're able to do more with less, and it's an even more positive link in identification than things like fingerprints. We never really got into using retinal patterns because it's so hard to get one from somebody. Uh, we use dental imprints, uh, you know, it, but... But DNA is just, um, on the one hand, you say it's inarguable. On the other hand, the, the management of it, the tracking and the controls and everything are so great. It, it's a definitely a, a different challenge for the chain of uh, evidence to be kept on. But I, I think it's, it's there. It's not going away. Obviously, it's going to grow and increase. Um, and we're going to see, we're going to get to the point where, um, you know, you touch something and you leave enough DNA. For, to be able to link to the object and it's just gonna be yeah. a way there's there's no way for a criminal to fully clean 100 percent of their dna off of a crime scene anymore i don't think just a matter of what we're looking for and where we find it great and um 
moving on, when we, we talk about gaining public trust and, and the importance of that, and like I said, a lot of this uh, roundtable session they held did deal with, uh, you know, including the public and gaining public trust. And uh, Ganesha Martin, who's the VP of Community Affairs and Public Policy with uh, Mark 43, um, she was also previously with the Baltimore Police Department and had a lot of experience with uh, the Baltimore police implementing new technology, but they didn't necessarily involve the public at first and then hit a lot of roadblocks. And of course, you know, lawmakers and, uh, you know, local politicians come in and kind of put the kibosh on, on some of those, uh, <laughs> so some of those new initiatives that, that uh, the police department has you know, spent money and manpowers and, and, and uh, planning and developing um, and basically said that, you know, that it's important and then we don't always want to, it's important to open the lines of communication with the public uh, very early on in that process. Um, the Baltimore Police Department began holding show and tells uh, where they would have, you know, press conferences, but they were longer than usual ones. They would demonstra demonstrate the new technology, uh, include the community and the media, and basically, you know, take questions and try to um, address some of the concerns. And that way that before, you know, before it's on the local news stations, before it's on CNN, before it's, you know, this police department's doing this, you have those conversations early on. And uh, so Frank, what, how important do you think it is to get the public involved? Do you think we need to get the public involved when it comes to implementing uh, these new technologies as they come out? Well, I think we need to get them involved to the point of getting their acceptance and trust. Yes. Um, you know, the, the, there's, obviously different outlooks on this. The more law, more tools law enforcement has that the public doesn't know about, sometimes the, the more efficient we can be at catching a criminal and building a case. But that makes us look underhanded. It makes us look like we're trying to do sneaky things. Yeah. You know, earlier you mentioned the ACLU. And then in this this piece, we you know, this segment, we talk about politicians and them weighing in. It's kind of interesting. And then you throw the mainstream media in the mix. Law enforcement decides we're going to implement X technology. Um, it's it's a new technology. So a lot of people perceive it as untested, untrustworthy, unwhatever. whatever. Uh, the ACLU weighs in and says we have all these concerns about privacy and warrants and this and that. The mainstream media gets a hold of it. And depending on how they present it, the politicians will decide which side of this they need to be on to garner a vote. Yeah. Um, and, and then the public gets fed everything and decides what they want to do. The reality is technology is not going away. It's increasing. It helps us maintain public trust uh, if law enforcement does regular briefings, regular press releases. Regular, I mean, there's some things we can't talk. We still don't talk about open criminal investigations. There's still information we don't put out, you know, in full 100%. Sometimes it's good to catch a murderer because you, there's something that you don't release and the murderer is the only person that knows it. And yeah. He gives himself away that way. But, you know, it's it's essential that we gain the public trust and share the information at the end of the day, Paul. That's the answer. We can't hide stuff. It makes us look underhanded. Yeah, and I, I think that uh, a lot of these law enforcement leaders also stress that when when they get some results from say the facial recognition technology or even the DNA technology that um, it's used as a lead. It's not, you know, this person is guilty right away. They go and arrest right. them. And that's just uh, purely used as a lead. And I, I think that's a lot of what they have to convey to the public that it's just another tool 
that they can use uh, and, and that it helps investigations and make, makes them more accurate in the end. So exactly. It's just another clue to be followed yeah, up. Yeah. So can, can you, I, I guess just wrapping this up, um, talk about how technology has changed, how you've seen it change over the years and um, how it's helped law enforcement investigate crimes. Well, I mean, at, at its most basic, uh, in the early 90s, we saw the beginnings of mobile data terminals and laptops and cars, and uh, it made it more efficient for the patrol officer to get information without having to bug a dispatcher. Now we have technology systems that integrate searches with automated scans like the ALPR systems, where we get a license plate and the software in the background does all of the requests, runs all the data, gives the officers warnings, uh, finds violations and all that. And that's going to continue, but it's going to move from things like license plates to facial recognition or, uh, you know, even to, I hate to say behavioral postures or clothing commonalities, but some people can be identified because they wear the same thing all the time. And it, it may not be particular to them, but it can be combined with other things to identify them. Um, I think it's going to keep, we, we've come a long, long way in 30 years. Um, but it's accelerating. I can't wait to see where we are in another five. Great. Well, yeah, this was a great discussion, Frank. And as always, thanks for joining me. Uh, it's my pleasure, Paul. I look forward to doing this again soon. Great. And um, if anybody uh, who's been listening wants to uh, chime in, wants to give us any suggestions, or maybe you have a question for us, you can reach us at editors at officer.com. That's editors at officer.com. And uh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Officer Roll Call. Be sure to check back every two weeks for a new episode. Stay safe.